Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. It is just me today, but I promise Aaron will be back soon. We have both been on very opposite schedules, and so it's been tough to find a time to record together, but we will soon. The summer is coming to an end. Our schedules are hopefully settling down, so we will do that soon. But I'm going to continue on with part two of our four-part series of how to fall back in love with your work. And I know I was in a place a couple months ago where I just wasn't feeling it. And I was having a really hard time coming out of that rut. And I had to come up with some strategies for myself to pull myself out of it, to find a reason to create again. Um, And I've come up with these four, you know, pillars, if you will, of, uh, or tools to get myself out of that rut. Um, I think it's so important to think through these strategies before we ever even fall in the rut in the first place, because when you're down, it's hard to come up with these, right? It's hard to know what to reach for. And so if you already have the tools in your tool belt to get yourself out of that rut, it makes it so much easier to get back on your feet again. So last week we talked all about finding things about our practice that excite us, you know, the actual, uh, the process, I mean, the process that excites us and what techniques we are interested in. If it's like very, very basic things like color, composition, whatever it is um, that gets us excited and kind of getting back to the root of it. And this week, I want to talk a little bit about more of the meat here, um, the substance of our work and how we create work that we love um, and content that excites us because, you know, we can you know, get really into the technique, but if we don't have something, a content or a subject matter that lights us up, it's kind of hard to stick to. So um, in finding uh, content that we find exciting, I think it's so important that we first address our inner critic. And I know that I have all these voices that entered my head when I went to art school. I know you know what I'm talking about. You have that one professor who is always in the back of your head whenever you make something and is like, uh, not quite good enough. Or a, a, a student, you know, a fellow student that said something once in a critique that still sticks with you. And I have this visual of um, that inner critic or those voices in my head being like, so my boyfriend's grandma has a cat named Smokey and Smokey loves to swat remotes and any knickknack or thing off of tables and like swat it down. And so now my visual for those voices, whenever I have a creative idea and it, and I, those voices like swat it to the side, I'm thinking of Smokey the cat, like swatting all my creative ideas down. And that's truly how I feel. I'm sure you also have a version of Smokey in your head that swats your creative ideas um, down. And it makes me so sad because, you know, I'm sure when you, I'm sure when you think of art school, you think like, oh wow, it's supposed to like open up your mind creatively. And unfortunately my experience in art school was that it kind of shut me down. It made my, my world a lot smaller and made, you know, myself, maybe more critical of myself and my work. Um, and an important process that I've had to go through these past four years since I've graduated is unraveling and identifying these voices as voices that aren't my own. 
these are voices that were, you know, put into my head, these scripts um, that no longer serve me. And I think it's time that we declutter our minds. We get rid of Smokey the cat in our brain that swats down all of our creative ideas and um, clean out those old scripts that we no longer need. Because once again, those aren't our voices. Those are other people's voices. And I had an unfortunately an experience this weekend where I was um, quite literally confronted with a voice from my past um, that really brought back like a script of, um, of shame, I guess, about my art. And I was at this art festival uh, this past weekend and uh, an old art school acquaintance uh, stopped by and this person, um, I think meant well, um, I hope she doesn't listen to this. Uh, I think she meant well, but essentially she came into my tent and was like, wow, good for you for doing what art school told us to never do. And it brought back, you know, the voice of my professor, like scoffing at the idea of art festivals and how, you know, um, <laughs> only peasants go to those, you know, just like how those are not professional, like galleries are and this hierarchy of what path we should be going on as painters. And that, um, if you dare ever do an art festival, you are lowering yourself forever. And these very like final, uh, statements that are now sound so ridiculous to me. Um, but that voice came popping back in and this acquaintance was like, you know, I, I did decide finally I'm going to do the other art fair, which is this still very prestigious art fair by Saatchi Art that she will be in soon. Um, and she's like, you know, I just, I know it's not what I'm supposed to do, but I'm just going to lower myself. You know, I know I'm selling out and essentially insinuating that I like really done the ultimate selling out because here I am doing these like street fairs and, um, like I said, I, I feel like she was trying to relate to me. I don't really know, but it, it just came, gave me like a flooding back in of all these negative voices about how I'm not good enough, how my work isn't elevated enough, and here I am selling out. And it's really not the message I needed as I was starting the day. This was the first person I interacted with at this festival, and... Yeah, it took me like several hours to snap out of it again. And um, yeah, so and it was really great that my boyfriend was there because I told him about this interaction. He's like, that's all bullshit. Like, that's her shit. Like, she just projected it onto you. Like, that's not your that's no no longer your voice. That's not what we know that what you're doing is working like is what she is, is what she's is, she, is it working for her like is she in any galleries like she's just now going to do an art festival like i clearly this is coming from a, her own stuff this is not you and um it was just it was an important reminder of you know okay yes that is no longer my voice that is or that was never my voice that was somebody else's voice in my head and Fortunately, I can see how it seems like she has a lot of voices in her head that are haunting her. Um, these voices of shame that are swatting down her creative ideas and swatting, you know, away any 
you know, inclination she has to share her work because it's not, that's not good enough, you know, like it's not good enough to go to an art festival. I need to be in the most high end gallery and it's kind of sad. So, um, I think it's important for you guys to identify what sort of creative, what sort of voices are in your head that are swatting your creativity, right? Like what sort of voices that don't belong to you are getting in your way? And this is an exercise, you know, I'm here, I'm talking through a voice that was in my head, but you're gonna have to do the same. Find, you know, your significant other, your best friend, um, some other artists that you trust to talk through these this with them or to journal about it and identify what voices are in your head that are not yours and are not serving you. It's time to expel the bullshit. And also I wanna just validate that like, art school trauma is real. <laughs> just like that art, I feel like there's, Art trauma and creative trauma is like a real thing, I feel. Like, I, I don't think that that's talked about enough, but I think that it's, I see it so often that artists, you know, we've had one negative experience and it really haunts us and we feel so much shame about it. And I also think that it's really that sort of tiny, small T trauma is kind of just like brushed off as like, well, you know, get over it or build some thick skin, but it's real and it's stuff we have to work through. And like I said, it's taken me four, taken me four years to get rid of some of these voices in my head and they're not all gone yet. And they still pop up, you know, literally, or just, you know, pop up in my brain from time to time. And I think the more that we get in the practice of identifying what voices aren't ours, we become closer to identifying our true voice um, and getting closer to finding those creative ideas that we really want to pursue that we're not going to let somebody else swat down that we're not going to let get crushed by those inner voices um, and that we're gonna you know find excitement in again so that is my first um, step i would say in getting over uh, or getting back into our work and finding exciting content uh, to work on and like i said that's going to be an ongoing process that's not something you can sit down once and then you're like great check i'm th i'm done with that I, I wish but so that's something you're going to have to continue to return to and then the second thing is taking the pressure off. I think <laughs> I'm going to tell a funny story. Okay. So I was in a poetry class in high school and one of my good guy friends was also in the class with me. And I remember there was this one poem we had to analyze and it was like a love poem. And <laughs> in this class, like we would get kind of in the weeds of like analyzing these poems and going over like, you know, the different verbiage being used and all that stuff and the poem structure. And we all definitely got really in our heads about these poems. And my, my friend uh, really, really did that in this one um, test we had. And it, like I said, it was a love poem we had to analyze and he got stuck on, I guess there was a line in the poem. Like, I don't even remember it that, referred to bowels <laughs> and i don't know why but he just took that one word and went like wrote an entire paper about bowels <laughs> and about how this poem was like about you know like i or intestines i have no idea like he wrote an entire essay about a love poem and made it about bowels and <laughs> my my teacher you know 
she found it actually hysterical. I don't even think she docked him that much because she just found, found it so funny. And I think we all had a laugh about it. And it was like a good moment of us being like, yeah, I think we're overanalyzing. And now we, we all laugh about it. But I think that's a real, it's a really <laughs> literal example of how we need to stop overanalyzing. Don't write... <laughs> Don't read a love poem and make it about bowels, essentially, because um, it's not. We need to look at the bigger picture. And sometimes we, if we look at the bigger picture, if it's a love poem, it's a love poem. And, and that's it. Like, we don't have to go crazy with it. Sometimes it's, just, it's a painting about beauty. And that's it. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be, you know you know, you don't have to write a thesis about every painting you create. And... I'm a very visual person. There's a reason I'm a painter and I'm not a writer. Um, and so for me, putting my paintings into words, it just it doesn't always work, you know? And sometimes the meaning gets lost, like in the translation, quite literally. And I, I think sometimes it's okay to start the painting, start the work and find the meaning as you go. It's also okay to to not be original. You know, that's a weird thing to say. Um, you'd be like, what? Julia told me to not be original? Yeah, I told you to not be original and stop trying to be original. Because let's be real, like everything under the sun has been painted or created or sung or whatever. It's, you know, it's hard to be original these days. And so if we start out with the goal of originality, good luck, <laughs> like good luck, like you're gonna be so overwhelmed. But if the goal is just to be authentic and the goal is to create work that lights you on fire and you get excited about, and who cares if it looks a little bit like somebody else's work, because the more you go, the more you're gonna hone your own style and aesthetic. And that will never happen if you don't start. It'll never happen. Going for originality up front, I think rarely actually produces some something original in the end, right? It ends up, look, you know that art that you look at and you're like, wow, that person was really trying <laughs> to be original. I think that happens most of the time. So stop worrying about being original and start worrying about being authentic and start working through that as you go. Start with the big picture and hone it. So what's something you have been overcomplicating in your work? Side note, it's raining outside right now where I'm at. And so you're going to get some, you know, rain. <laughs> you're going to be listening to like a rain meditation right now while listening to my voice. So think of this as a therapeutic exercise. What have you been overcomplicating in your work? What has been just like you just keep ruminating about? How can you simplify it? How can you just take it for face value? Um, something else that I've done recently too is... Um, I've stopped trying to find the meaning myself. I've started to maybe let other people um, identify it for me a little bit more. And what I mean by this is, you know, no, I'm not letting people write like whole thesis statements about my own, my work, but when I'm at art festivals, I've started paying attention to words that other people say about my art when they come in. Um, the positive ones, not the negative ones. Um, and I've noticed that one of the words that people say over and over again when they enter my booth is, wow, this, the vibe is so happy in here. And so I have started to embrace that and proclaim that I'm a happy painter. Wow, it is pouring. <laughs> so sorry, guys. Um, enjoy this like rain <laughs> sounds here. 
I've started to embrace being a happy painter. I have also just started to let that be the common thread and stop overcomplicating it. I can paint, you know, a landscape one day that feels very happy, and I can paint a sit like a, a sprawling landscape and mountains mountainside one day and have that have a happy vibe and paint a city the next day and also have that have a, have a happy vibe. And there's the meaning is still, you know, flowing between the two. I've stopped overcomplicating it. I would love it if you could do an exercise where you simplify the meaning of your work down to a couple words rather than an entire thesis statement. Um, I think you'll feel so much freer because if really the end goal of your paintings is just to, you know, have it be, maybe you want your work to be reflective. There are a lot of things that land within that, you know? It opens you up to so many more possibilities. Maybe you want your work to, um, be all about color and a study of color. Well, now you can paint literally anything that's colorful. It just opens you up to so many more creative potential and opportunities. Like I said before, I feel like when I was in art school and all those voices were in my head and I was overcomplicating everything, my world became really small. I couldn't see past, you know, what art school wanted me to make that I started to feel like there were limited possibilities of what I could create because either it already been already had been done before my art school peers wouldn't like it um yada 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 and once now that I feel like I only have to have just like one word and for me it's joy and happiness um as a common denominator in my work I feel like the possibilities are infinite so I hope that you can take that piece of advice and it can serve you in some way the next thing the third and final thing that I really want to talk about in terms of finding content that excites you is making it a matter of personal taste. And I say personal taste intentionally because I think so often we get so consumed by, you know, what's the current climate? What's the current taste of the times that, um, that ultimately that doesn't last, right? It's we're the ones making the art. It has to be our taste. And an exercise that I have done um, to quite literally figure out my sense of taste is uh, my boyfriend and I have this, this problem. We can never decide on what we want to eat or where we want to order takeout from. It's like, no, you decide. No, you decide. What are you in the mood for? What are you in the mood for? And then we go back and forth and it ends up being an argument. And so... <laughs> One of the things we do now is instead of listing what we have a taste for, we find it easier to identify what we don't have a taste for. I know that, you know, a lot of the time I do like sushi, but I have to be in a particular mood for sushi. So I will just say like, not in the mood for sushi, not in the mood for pizza, whatever. And it immediately eliminates like a lot of potential places so that we have a way smaller list to choose from of what we're in the mood for. Um, and that's a much easier decision than deciding between the hundreds of restaurants in Chicago. So do, maybe you need to do that with your own work or for your own taste. What types of art do you not like? And be really specific, like list, maybe there's certain types of music. You're just like, don't like pop music, don't like classical music, whatever. Be, you know, be totally candid and list all the 
different types of tastes that relate to your work that you're just not into. And I think that sometimes it's easier to identify what we don't like than what we do like. But when we cross off that list of all the things we're not into, it becomes way, way easier to identify what we do like and what our style and personal preferences are. So I hope you'll take that exercise um, and do that if you are feeling lost, whether that be in style or subject matter. Um, I also think sometimes turning to other people, like I said before, with um, relying on other people to identify a common denominator in my work, um, sometimes it's good to have that outside perspective. I am self-admittedly terrible at fashion. Um, I, as my my best friend Olivia, who is a fashion aficionado, I have an eclectic taste. I I think my problem is that I I might like something, but that doesn't mean it's gonna look good on me. And uh, so I just end up having a closet that is a hodgepodge of everything, and nothing really goes together very well. And so I'm actually asking my friend Olivia to come over in a couple of weeks and just help me go through my closet and figure out like what fits here, what doesn't. What sort of pieces do I need to get so that we can, you know, how do we bridge the gaps? You know, how do how do we get, you know, this sort of preppy style and with this like grungy style? How do we fit this all together here? So sometimes it requires us to get that outside perspective from somebody we trust to see, you know, what's working, what sort of content is the main theme here, what's the 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 thread that's going to tie it all together, and. I'm really excited actually for this. I might finally look fashionable. Um, But yeah, I hope that you can find somebody who you trust to help you identify those common denominators or if it's just yourself, like I said before, list those words that you associate with your work that ties it all together. List the things you don't like. And, and one other exercise to take that practice of listing what you don't like is look at the actual things you've created recently. And I, I know this is gonna sound like a very self-critical exercise, but listing the things that you, maybe you don't love about recent things you've made um, will also help you maybe see more clearly what direction you wanna go and where what you need to leave behind as well. And having a good sense of taste is so powerful. It'll, that will sustain you for so much longer than following the trends of the time. Um, I think what I'm excited about with my friend Olivia is I don't think she's going to force me to like change my style or my taste. She's just going to help me like make it work better, make it all come together. And that's what you need to do for your work. You don't have to change your taste. You don't have to change what you're making. You might just have to make some small tweaks to make it all fit together better. And when we start creating work that really just is in our own taste, that is authentically us, that's where the originality comes from. That's where we find the content and the subject matter that's gonna light us up and sustain us for a creative practice that'll last years and years and years. So I hope that these three different steps, processes will help you um, find work that excites you um, to hopefully get you out of that rut as I talked about and as a tool to put in your tool belt so that if you ever do fall in a rut, you can climb back out and find something um, exciting to, to work on. So let me know if you thought this episode was helpful. Please share it with somebody else if you think that they need a little bit of help right now finding content that they find exciting um, of reconnecting with their work. 
And of course, also, if you could leave us a review, that really helps other people find the podcast. Um, we so appreciate you guys for tuning in every week. And don't forget to subscribe as well so you never miss an episode. Thank you guys so much again, and stay tuned for part three next week.